you know, I think we have had to move from teacher to student, you know, on environmental work and on outdoor experiences for a long time. We've been in a position of, you could say, authority, whether that's the right word, but at least, you know, a voice that people looked to and listened to, you know, when we wanted to talk about outdoor sport and great products and environmental work. Um, but with regards to climate justice and social justice and anti-racism, we have really had to step into the seat of the student and that, you know, it's, it's humbling, um, but it's, it's what's needed. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, Activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks, and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world, in service to life, becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth. Hello, this is Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, It means a lot to have you here. Uh, In this episode, I'm in conversation with Alex Weller, uh, Marketing Director for Patagonia Europe. Now, apart from Patagonia being one of my favourite businesses on the planet, Alex is an exceptional human. He has a brilliant mind, a beautiful spirit, and is dedicated to doing as much as he can to help bring forth a new paradigm of regenerative business, of which there is no doubt that Patagonia is leading the pack. Um, His work at Patagonia is at this dynamic cross-section of outdoor sports and adventure, um, the amazing product that supports those pursuits, environmental activism and climate action, and engaging uh, in culture change to help us live more mindfully, peacefully, and with lower impacts on this beautiful planet we all call home. Now, with a new mission statement uh, that says we are in business to save our home planet. This was a wide-ranging conversation which explores uh, Alex's journey to Patagonia, um, how Patagonia approaches um, the multiple issues we are facing as a species, uh, its ways of working, how it supports uh, environmental activism and projects on the ground, Uh, We talk about its use of film um, combined with campaigning uh, to shine a light on so many of these destructive systems that underpin global consumer culture and how to disrupt those systems for change. Um, We explore uh, our consumption addiction, what uh, post-consumption and new forms of circular design might look like. And we also dig into the events of 2020 and how racism in particular, uh, uh, white privilege um, and its intersections with 
climate and social justice are creating a wake up for for everyone, uh, Patagonia included. So let's cut to it. This is uh, The Spaceship Earth, episode 45 with Alex Weller from Patagonia. Right then, Alex, welcome to The Spaceship Earth podcast. Hello, Dan. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. Where uh, Whereabouts on The Spaceship Earth are you right now? I'm in Amsterdam at home in my office and the sun is shining outside and I'm feeling pretty good. I had a little bike ride earlier. Nice. Um, just to clear the mind and um, get prepared for the chat. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm, de- I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here and um, we should just dive in. And I think like, um, I guess with all, with all uh, these episodes, I'd love to just, before we get into the the meat of your work it would be lovely just to hear a little bit about um a bit of your backstory before we get into the you know your your work with uh with patagonia but just a bit of a bit of context on i guess your uh what what got you to where you are now a little bit of an insight that would be really would be a great place to start if that's all right with you yeah, absolutely. I'll do my be- I'll do my best. The, do your best. The, a, a, a short shaggy shaggy dog story. <laughs> um, <laughs> short shaggy, um, lovely. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of those weird people who um, decided to uh, pursue a career in marketing, like while I was still at college, and, and I and I can't even really remember why um, why marketing, but I know yeah. for sh- I know for sure that there was you, you know something that piqued my interest about this. Uh, the sort of interaction between creativity and you know analytical thinking or whatever yeah. but, but I, I also think that in the 90s it was probably one of the most exciting industries that you could think about because yeah. consumerism was like you know was the was just firing yeah. and to be part of that thing was just seemed so incredibly exciting and so that's you know that's what i chased down in the career when was it when so this would be early early to mid 90s was this yeah i was i graduated from university in 97 and i got my first job straight out of college for a little um uh, a little what used to be called a youth marketing agency i don't think they have them anymore but that was back in the days when you know people used to um you know, how, do we, do like, how do we reach the young people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you used to do things like, um, you know, branded postcards that were perforated so you could roll them up into roaches. For splish. You know, that was that, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was sort of like the the idea, or like hire graffiti artists to do some kind of corporate graffiti work or something. Yeah, so, yeah all that. And it was, but it was it was actually genuinely super exciting. It, it was the company was called Third Planet. There was about probably four or five of us in, in West London and loads of video games work. And, uh, yes. And you know, we did some work for vans and stuff yeah. like that. And it was, yeah, it was, it, it was, um, it was a fun and exciting kind of start to that, to that journey and sort of allowed me to live in this weird, slightly surreal bubble where I could pursue all the things that I was really into like skateboarding and music. Yeah, because you're, so you're, 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 you're like pro- proper skater, right? You, you were, that was something you've been doing 
much, of your, much of your young years, right? I, well, at least at that time, yeah. I definitely was, yeah. I definitely was. I mean, I, you know, my body gave up on skateboarding uh, before my mind did. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah, for sure. That skateboarding was the thing that I discovered when I was a young kid, and it certainly defined how I thought about things and looked at the world for a really long time. And so, to you know, to elect, for my career and my passions to sort of overlap and you know work with really exciting. Uh, at the time, you know, Vans, for example, that I worked with in the in the very early noughties was was really this kind of emergent brand in Europe. Not many mm. people knew about it. So it's sort of being part of that kind of explosion of action sports culture at that time in Europe and in the UK was really fun. Um, and it sort of, yeah, kind of led me down this path into, into video games marketing. I ended up working... F- at Microsoft for Microsoft in Reading, right. um, running um, brand marketing for Xbox, which was, you know, a- again, loads of fun. Um, um, quite weird working in a really large um, sort of matrixed organization. But I, it definitely schooled me on certain things. Um, and then from there, I moved over to Nike. That's when I moved to, to Amsterdam uh, eight years ago. Um, right. to work for, for Converse and run brand communications for Converse where we did um, loads of really interesting work on enabling creative culture, supporting music and art uh, and skateboarding still, believe it or not. I was yeah. uh, approaching, approaching my 40s at that point and still that when it, to sort That's of, when it was in your head then, the skateboarding. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, yeah, it definitely was no longer active at that point. Um, and um, yeah, um, but I think... At that kind of period of, of, of time, you know, we're going back probably eight years ago, a lot of the things that I was starting to process as, as, a, as a grown up with, you know, married with kids, yeah. um, you know, who spent a lot of my life um, sort of, you know, the, I think the 90s just created a breed of like ultra consumers and I was definitely one of them. And, and I was, you know, on the back end of that processing um, and struggling with the, um, you know, the, the, the lifestyle that I was living and that the, the most people were and, and starting to kind of pick away at, um, at my sort of environmental understanding and sort of scratch below the surface and try and work things out. And was, that, was that something you were, you were sort of seeing or was it something you were more feeling? I'm just really curious because I you know, went on quite a similar journey, but I was so curious as to where that came from, that awareness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, part of it came from the fact that, I, you know, I was, I was travelling a lot, I mean, really a lot. You know, I was on planes most of the time. And, you know, starting to get this sense that what I was, the sort of the, the entirety, the totality of what I was doing, um, uh, you know, which, which I loved, by the way, I really enjoyed, yeah. um, you know, exciting, creative work, cool, dynamic company, great, smart, creative people that I was working with, but moving around a lot, um, becoming increasingly aware in my subconscious, I think, that it was crazy, you know, and the, you know, the narrative around, you know, personal environmental impact at that time was one that was just starting to emerge. I think the conversation around sort of systemic environmental change wasn't really, really happening, I don't think. I mean, don't tell me, but no, no, I, th- right. I think eight years ago, it wasn't really happening. That movement hadn't emerged yet. And so I think there was just lots of individuals sort of grappling with 
man, I'm, you know, I think I'm making lots of impact here and how do I work that out? And yeah. I'd, I'd always been really interested in Patagonia from a distance, this sort of um, uh, almost like sort, of, sort of supernatural brand that was doing really, really radical things that I probably didn't fully understand that also made wonderful, wonderful gear um, that, I, you know, that I was already a fan of. And, um, you know, somewhat fortuitously, um, the the role of, you know, to run marketing for Patagonia in Europe popped up and I started having conversations with those guys. And in having those conversations with, with Ryan, who was the GM at that time in Europe, and trying to, you know, really understand like what, you know, what is this company all about and why does it exist? And, and the, you know, the, the, the reality that, you know, presented itself to me was that this, this was a company that yes, it made clothes, but it existed to do something much bigger than that. You know, it existed to bring a conversation into the mainstream that needed to be had mm-hmm. around um, the sort of relentless um, consumption of planetary resources and how business um, could play a part in changing how we frame that and changing how we think about that um, and and ultimately do business differently. And it was such an incredibly exciting prospect. And anyway, I, I, I didn't need much convincing. Yeah, that I, I, maybe they needed some convincing that I was the right guy. But uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't. I didn't need much convincing to sort of make that move across. And um, and and it has been. Uh, you know, I've been at Patagonia now for six years, and it has just been an incredibly powerful and transformative journey for me. It continues to be. It's it's fascinating hearing you you talk because you know, you know obviously I you know my, my you know I had a trajectory into the brand world and from an agency perspective and and remember like when I first started exploring this kind of sustainability and brand tension and what the hell's that all about when I was working with Nokia back you know 10 12 years ago but but even at that point you know, there's all like you said there's always Patagonia was always there as this as this kind of light of of possibility and and, and it was I remember for years it would always probably be the only company that anyone had ever mentioned in decks and you know in pitches yeah. and you know and you just and it's and it was always this thing in my head was so strange isn't it, it was this that, that, that there was only this one brand really that seemed to seemed either able capable or whatever it was yeah i, I mean it, i think it was it was a corporate case study long before it was a big brand right you know i mean you know 10 years ago you're talking about 10 years ago this is a company that um was probably generating about 300 million dollars a year annual revenue right i mean small in this in the sense of global business mm-hmm. um but at the same time was being discussed you know at a board level you know in agency you know conversations it was this kind of corporate case study that was you know that would get pulled up so if you worked in marketing you knew about Patagonia you'd seen it in decks you see it in presentations yeah as the conversation of you know the intersection with brands and business and uh, environmental solutions started to you know come to light more yeah um and um but but I think 10 years ago, as I said, you know, 10 years ago, it's a relatively small company. And I think broadly speaking, citizens, people at large hadn't really connected with that story yet. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. Um, I, I remember um, coming over to uh, to your Amsterdam HQ a couple of years ago and um, uh, walking into the reception and there's the there's beautiful big statement on the wall 
we're in business to save our home planet. Um, which is quite some, which is quite some mission. And, uh, and I know obviously that was a, you know, that was a, a you know, a, an evolving statement that had, had come out, uh, uh, not so long ago, but can we just talk about that a little bit, just as a, you know, a, a where, 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 when that kind of landed into the business, it was yeah. sort of an evolution, but also, cause to some people that sounds, it's, you know, in many ways it's, it's sort of beautiful and bonkers and nuts and you know what I mean? And inspiring yeah. and, all, and all these things. Can you just tell us a bit about that when, when it landed in and, and, and how do you kind of, how do you work with that as a, as a, as a, as an organization? Yeah, there was a mission statement that was, I think, finally put into words back in the 90s um, uh, when the company was really trying to sort of consolidate its environmental purpose and, it, and, it, and its reason for being and make it explicit. And I think until that point, it, it had been somewhat implicit. And the old mission statement was build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, and use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. As you can see, it's etched into my brain. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that was the mission statement that I inherited, you, you know, that I started to work with yeah. um, six years ago when I started at Patagonia. And it was a really useful mission statement because you could break it up into these three parts. You know, build the best product. Yes, check, we're building great product. Cause no unnecessary harm. Are we doing everything that we can? to mitigate the negative impact of our business on planet and people. Yes, we're doing the best that we can. and We're moving that forward at all times. Um, and are we using this business as a platform to inspire others and broadly speaking, move the conversation forward? Yes, check, right? And we could look at that every day and go, you know, does this initiative check one or more of those boxes? Yes, it does. We're doing a great job. This is really good. And so it became this really comfortable sort of coat that we wore and we i think we're quite pleased with ourselves that we would live up to this mission statement every day and then in december 2018 um yvonne chenard the founder of the company and owner and still the owner you know he's now in his 80s so we've got an octogenarian boss um and um and uh, and he changed our mission statement overnight without any forewarning and it was delivered to us without a rule book. And he said, here it is. We're in business to save our home planet. This is why we exist. Now you guys have to go and work out how we live up to that. And it was really fucking intimidating, you know, <laughs> because all of a sudden we've gone from this, uh, this set of words that we were really good at using to this, uh, it, it was like he he threw a stone like all the way down the road. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was so far ahead of us. But that was its intent. It's quite clear now, looking back, that it was designed to be difficult, to be aspirational, and to challenge us all to be much more single-minded and to up our game and accelerate our focus on the most important stuff. And I will say to you that it its effect was almost immediate in how it um, accelerated the boldness of our work, um, the focus of our work, um, and the intensity of the work that we do, certainly with regards to environmental action. You know, things like Patagonia Action Works, I don't think would have happened without the new mission statement. 
you know, the president stole your land, I don't think would have happened without that mission statement. Hmm. Gift of giving, um, youth climate strikes. I mean, the list goes on. There was a real turning of the dial on um, uh, on our work and on our boldness. Um, so, yeah. Um, it's, so, it, it's so interesting. Do you, and do you think folks were actually sort of, you know, unconsciously ready, really ready for that then almost? Because it sounds like, like you say, it was, it was almost permission to... To step up, yeah, I, you know, I think so. It, um, there was, you know, there was definitely hesitancy at first. You know, when people first saw those words, it was like because I think we were used to a mission statement being a reflection of how we work hmm. rather than an aspiration, and I think that's the thing that people really, you know, in the first instance, kind of struggled with. And you could definitely see other people, you know, outside of the company, sort of raising their eyebrows, like. <laughs> you know this is a, a you know a, a, you know at that point less than a billion dollar revenue outdoor clothing company in the grand scheme of things you know a relatively sort of s- small spec yeah. on, on planet earth um professing to you know to be aiming to to, to save our planet you know and um and yeah, it, and, and so there was there was some vulnerability came with that as well, yeah. you know, because yeah. like oh damn, like yeah. you know, all eyes are upon us as well. Um, but it, no, but it was it, it, once we really leaned into it, it was empowering, absolutely, and liberating. It's um, you know, I want to you know again because obviously you know Pascal has you know has been living and breathing this this spirit you know since it started, and we'll, and we can dig into that a bit, and obviously you know, the issues that the world is experiencing are coming at us thicker and faster and, you know, by the by the day in weeks at the moment. And we, I'd like to chat a little bit about the last year in a second. But, mm. um, but you know, it's the work of Patagonia is this kind of blend, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, you have this, you know, this outdoor sports, this cross-section that you're working with, environmental activism um, and change and, it's 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 quite a blend it's very unusual i mean for for me it's, it's always excited me and for me it almost feels like intuitively you know every business has you know should be operating at that kind of blend you know because it's not it's just not enough anymore you know you can't just be focused on on your product anymore you know what i mean you, but but how do you how does that manifest itself in how you guys work because it is an unusual you know in the world that we live in it's it, it feels like it's that's where we all need to go but it's it is it's not you're not just there about product, but obviously you're building these great products. You're trying to help people connect with the outdoors and perform and, and all this great stuff. But at the same time, the activism is is so front and center now for you guys. And what is what is that like? Can you give us give us a bit of an insight into what it's like working with that that kind of blend? I'll do my best. I mean, it is you know you framed it really well, Dan. It's a really dynamic tapestry, and the and 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 it's ever changing and and 2020 without a doubt added many more ingredients to that and working out what to focus on Mm. um and when to focus on it is you know it's a constant live conversation within the company you know the product that we build is the engine, right? It's the engine of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, we are really proud that we make fantastic product and we make it for really specific end use benefits. And we make it in the best possible way we know how 
causing the least amount of harm that we know how. But we we don't we we also try our hardest not to artificially accelerate demand for that product. And so the role of product marketing within how we think about you know, engaging with customer communities and communities in general um, is is quite discreet. Um, it is really specific to you know communicating on the supply chain and communicating on the end use benefits of that product. The environmental work, you know, it, it runs alongside. It's less of um, of an engine room. If the product work is, you know, an engine room where we are more sort of systematically working on storytelling, mm. the environmental work is much more nuanced because it's, you know, it's built upon real world relationships, groups that we support on the ground, an understanding of the issues that we're focused on. And so there is a lot of that that's quite timely that is about us recognizing um, an urgent need to support something and leaning in and supporting that and using our brand voice to you know to to make an, an, a particular issue or campaign more likely to be successful um, so you know on that sort of intersection between product and brand if you like mm. that that's hopefully that gives you a, you know some yeah, sense yeah, yeah, a small yeah. sense yeah. of how, how we you know how we think about it um, but there's also a bunch of other stuff that's always going on. So um, our Warnware program, which is um, the platform, a circularity platform that talks about keeping your gear in use for longer, reducing the need for new product, um, re-commerce, so buying um, buying used before buying new, um, is, is one platform that's always on um, and always has a communication need. And Patagonia Action Works, which is our digital activism platform, which we launched about 18 months ago. And um, yeah, and that thing constantly needs nourishing and feeding and and working with. And so, yeah, in, at any given moment, you know, we've got live projects with Action Works, live projects with Warmware, environmental campaigns, multiple product campaigns, um, sport community storytelling. Um, so th- there's a lot. There's a yeah. lot. And <laughs> learning and, and learning how to lean in and embrace that complexity and not try and force simplicity into that complexity um, is, is, is part of the trick. But it, 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 it took me a long time to, to get my head around that, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating, I say, is it because you, so you're, you're sort of playing with the, I guess, the, the need for sort of planning and, you know, strategic focus and consistency in communications. But you have this very sort of um live element to what you're working with is that the, obviously these issues are you know coming at us faster and faster and the world is you know is reeling at the moment from <laughs> from uh from you know all forms of uh crises and i remember because i remember like um i remember particularly just comes to mind when um you know the the well i can't remember it was the last one but it was one of the big xr rebellions um extinction rebellion you know it was was it was it october was it i can't remember when it was was it 2019 i don't remember but i remember i remember patagonia the last, the last, the last physical one was it that one yeah yeah i think because i remember patagonia yeah, was, was very very um you were very active around 
around that time with yeah uh and tell, tell us a bit about because there was some fascinating things going on i remember like um you know your you wasn't there something in the the company about um um you know willing to support any kind of legal fees of staff who wanted to put themselves on the front line and yeah yeah tell us a bit about how how something like that comes up and how do you kind of make decisions as a as a, as a company about these kind of things yeah I, yeah so um supporting activism supporting employee activism is um is something that we're really focused on and we do that in a bunch of different ways um, we have something called environmental internships. So our employees are able to spend up to six weeks of the working year currently um, working with environmental, directly with environmental groups. Um, and that enables the, yeah, the employee population to, to really engage in the issues that, that matter to them and do it in quite a deep and substantive way. And yeah, quite a lot of us have taken on that um, uh, that opportunity. Uh, but then, you know, th- there are other forms of of activism that are more sort of resistance oriented, and mm-hmm. um, and so um, whether it be climate strikes or you know marching, mm-hmm. uh, which is more uh, a more let's say obedient form of activism, um, yeah. you know, to permit permission-based activism where people are allowed to march and we've done a lot of that um but with xr um so we we've supported xr through our one percent for the planet giving for for a few years now and quite a lot of our employees are are xr rebels and you know actively participate in in the planning and working with various xr groups around the world um in the uk and here in nl and for the the last rebellion here in Amsterdam, we gave the XR guys space in our office to be their, their sort of media command center. So mm. they were in, in the sort of weeks leading up to it, and during the rebellion, we using using that uh, using our office space, which was um, cool to be able to do that. And then about fifteen employees um, were went to. Uh, one of the main blockades in Amsterdam and one of the things that we have in place. So we have different support mechanisms for that. Uh, we have uh, employee-based affinity groups. So there are people who um, actually join a blockade and lock on, and there are others that will be nearby to support with food and water and whatever else. Yeah. And um, uh, But we also have legal support. So bail funds, um, legal support, for those who get arrested, um, and yeah, so it, it it enables people to 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 do that, uh, you know, that important form of activism as well yeah. within the context of their work. Which, um, yeah, I, I don't know whether that's unique to Patagonia, but it's it, it's certainly something that we've enabled for, for, for a while. Yeah, yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's it was it was. Um it's making me think again of like, you know, and we've talked about this before in the past about this, you know, this idea of activism and, you know, and for, for many people it, you know, bring, it brings up a sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, this kind of idea of resistance and rebelling. And obviously I think we see activism as a, as something that everyone is, is, um, invited into. And actually it's just, it's just, you know, it's just acting on, on, <laughs> on, on something bigger than yourself. Right. And, uh, and there are many ways to participate in, in, in activism. And, um, but it's interesting, isn't it with the, even as you're speaking about 
this XR, you know, just the support for, for for staff that would want to participate. And, you know, that would, that I imagine does sort of um, uh, not compute for, 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 for many businesses. But then when we, again, when we step back to saving our home planet and obviously this understanding of, you know, without ecology, there is no economy, <laughs> there is no business. It, it is, this sort of disconnect, I still think, that exists between commerce and, you know, the reality that, you know, commerce cannot exist without a healthy planet, you know, a stable climate, all of all of these things, which feel like obviously have always been at the heart of Patagonia's understanding, but it feels like we must be approaching a tipping point of comprehension of that. You know, I really hope so. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you, you guys have been, you know, through the work, you know, obviously you support huge amounts of um, uh, environmental activism projects on the ground um, through your funding processes, but also obviously through your campaigning work. Mm. And just speaking, let, I'd just like to sort of, yeah, explore that because you're so, you know, there's many different issues that you're um, getting behind as a, as a business, um, whether it's, you know, agriculture, soils, climate, you know, waterways, land access. I mean, there's so many uh, things which you're, you know, you're flagging up and, and, and really trying to sort of um, bring attention to. How do you how do you make those kind of calls at the moment about the things that you go after? And, and obviously, you know, these are, you know, the, you're, you're really investing, like the film, the, I'd like to talk about obviously some of these campaigns and the, and the film work that you guys are doing because that's become a big part, right, of, of the work you're doing. But can you just give us a bit of insight into that? Yeah, I can, Dan. And and there's something else that you touched on there that I'd love to chat about in a minute as well. If if we get if we get the time, yeah. which is which I think is about consumption in general and the sort of the the elephant in the room in business. Mm. Um, and, and and maybe we can get to that. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> um, Let's start the campaigns. Let's get into yeah, it. Right. What, what, what are we buying anyway? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. We do work on a lot of different topics. And part of the reason for that is that the really the, the foundation for our environmental work is our 1% for the planet grant giving. So very quick uh, 101 yeah. on that. We, um, we tax ourselves 1% of gross revenue every year. And that money goes into a fund. And that fund is distributed through a grant process, um, a grant application process. And it's designed to support small grassroots environmental groups, mainly small grassroots uh, environmental groups globally. And we support um, over a thousand groups globally. Here in Europe is around 160 groups that we support on a, on a, on a really broad range of issues. Um, but all they, can issues be, they can be big and small, right, as well, like real range of projects that you support. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't generically support groups. We support projects that groups are working on. So we don't just, for example, um, fund Friends of the Earth generically. Um, yeah. We will support them on a specific campaign or project if, they're, you know, if their grant is successful. Likewise, for Protect Our Winters, um, or service against sewage, as, you know, there's a bunch that we support, of course, and um, and so that um, that granting process is the foundation for the you know the network, if you like, our environmental network, and it's our real contact into the into the important work, and we have employees in each re in each 
country in Europe um, and here are our headquarters in Amsterdam whose sole work is to support those groups, to work with them, to build our network and to build alliances. And we do that in a, in, in a range of ways. We do it physically um, or we did and we will again soon yeah. um, with, with big meetups, um, which are called uh, Tools for Grassroots Activist events. So we'll get 70 or 80 environmental groups together and we'll share ideas and um, share best practice and learnings and educate each other and hopefully move the conversation forward and make us all, you know, hopefully better at what we do. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have uh, Patagonia Action Works, which is a platform that all of those groups get access to. And that means that they can digitally scale their efforts. Um, so we use that platform to reach our customer communities and connect them directly with the groups that we support and they can do a bunch of different things. But the other thing that it does, Dan, is enable us to see at close range all of the things that those groups are working on. And in that understanding, we identify some of the most critical, urgent things that we think we can and should support. And that, broadly speaking, is the process through which we start to kind of filter in on, on campaigns. And so we will have, you know, we'll, we'll have. So it's almost um, like a living kind of like pulse network for it yeah, allows you to really un understand what's going on and, and where the, oh. where the pressures really are right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a really specific example. Um, we, we made a film and built a campaign around that film a few years ago called Blue Heart. And that film was focused on an issue in the, in the Balkan peninsula of Europe, you know, specifically Albania, Bosnia, Serbia, and which is an area um, of sort of unparalleled wilderness, yeah, pristine wilderness in Europe, mm. in continental Europe, and um, specifically the, the fluvial systems, the rivers, and they have incredible networks of free-flowing rivers from source to sea. And in the rest of Europe, yeah, every, you know, everything is damned and obstructed and, and interfered with and the ecosystems around them are therefore damaged. Um, but we have these incredible in, intact river ecosystems. But there was, we had been working for quite some time with a network of groups in that region who had been fighting to prevent the uh, sort of tsunami of, of dam construction in that region. Um, and... Um, and the sort of nefarious um, business practices that were driving that driving that dam construction boom, and you know there, there was a, a period, a moment in time where you know it, we realised that this this issue, this um, risk, was intensifying really dramatically and really quickly, and so you, we decided to lean into it, and that's how you know the 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 decision was made, if you like, to focus on Blue Heart as a big global brand campaign uh, so make a feature-length film and do all of the things that you would do to drive large-scale customer awareness and lead people towards action and the other thing is you know that's really important there is that you know that the, the action-based outcome that that we want to achieve is this you know the, the the stopping of dam construction you know we want projects to be cancelled um we want um ideally the systems that underpin them to be able to to be enabled in the first place uh, to be dismantled, right? And in order to do that, you have to kind of work your way back to the, you know, 
through the roots of the decision making. And what we worked out in that process is that there are you know, large funding mechanisms for the majority of these projects that sit with big international banks like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So we focused all of our energy and all of our campaigning energy on asking the EBRD to change its funding policy for hydropower projects in the Balkans. And, but but that, that process, of course, takes a long time and it takes a lot of very technical expertise. But fortunately, because we have those relationships with those groups and we've developed them for a long time, all of that expertise and knowledge is there. And so we're pulling that up and synthesizing it and turning it into powerful human storytelling that hopefully moves people to action. Um, and in the case of Blue Heart, it absolutely did. Um, yeah. And it's because it's, I mean, <clears throat> the films are, are amazing on so many levels, but they are like investigative journalism as well, right? I mean, when you watch them, you know, you are uncovering, like, as you say, like you're, you, sometimes these, you know, we see, we hear about these issues. You, you, you're obviously you're hearing them on the front lines of, from the sort of environmental activism perspective. But like you say, once you start following the traces and, and, and the pathways and opening doors, ultimately, you know, it, 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 you know, 90% of the time, you know, it leads to money, right. And power and, um, all, I mean, I mean, really all of it. And I think the, yeah. you know, the intersection between political and commercial interest and environmental destruction is ever present in, in, in all of these issues, whether it be dam construction in the Balkan Peninsula of Europe or, um, open net fish farming in the fjords of, of, of Norway and Sweden, um, you know, this is the, 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 the systems that enable this environmental damage, this environmental chaos to persist are usually an intersection of business and, and government policy. And, and, and that's the, you know, that's the space that you need to drive a wedge into and obstruct. And, and usually businesses and politics are quite sensitive to attention and film at scale is a really powerful way <laughs> to um to sort of poke that sensitivity uh and 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 to and to generate a response i mean um it's making me think of obviously there's you know because there's you, you guys are releasing um you know a, a prolific now really with with this approach but i'm watching who owns the land and um just what that was digging up in terms of again the sort of even just like you know the framing of of environmentalists uh, by reagan in the 80s as these kind of like this these people that was huge threat to to the future of prospering america and you know it's mad when you see all this stuff and you and you see how these things have landed and seeded and then obviously how that whole that, you know, that whole, you know, the bear's ears and how that opened up, um, you know, into, with the Trump administration and, and, you know, and it's, it's dark, isn't it? It's like when you, you get into this, I mean, it's not, it's not, you're not making pretty, I mean, you make some, you're making beautiful films, but they're, they're properly on the, you're properly exploring some pretty dark stuff about humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is a permanent and persistent effort by commercial interest to, um, to defraud the public of information, you know, that, that <laughs> there is a reason why these incredibly important stories often remain hidden mm. um, and untold. You know, it, when you first talk to people about 
you know, the issues in relation to salmon farming, for example, and how it is very rapidly accelerating the extinction of um, of Atlantic salmon. On the surface of it, that seems like a very specific, quite niche, esoteric topic, you know, and, and why does that matter enough to make a film about it? But of course, as a, as a metaphor, it's incredibly powerful because the only thing that is driving the extinction of one of the most incredible keystone species on the planet is the desire to dr- deliver shareholder value back to, um, you know, b- b- back to the board, back to the shareholders of those publicly owned companies that farm salmon, right? And th- and th- th- that's a system, that's an economic system that has the financial interest of a s- relatively small group of in- individuals at its heart. But what? But the outcome of that system is the is the destruction of a keystone species. And that's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And it's the same for public trust. I mean, yes, public trust talks about very specifically the public lands issue in the United States and the the sort of the the pendulum swing of right-wing politics, sort of libertarian ideals of, you know, allowing, you know, unlimited free access of, you know, for business to resources and the more kind of liberal values of, of retaining public land for the benefit of the people. But really what is at the heart of all of that is this sort of nefarious connection between politics and business. And you see that play out everywhere, you know, across the UK, across Europe, you know, whether it's the, you know, the destruction of the Bielowice forest in Poland currently, or the Hambach forest in, you know, in Germany, which is, you know, in the process of being ripped out to, you know, expand the Gartsweiler to, um, lignite mine, you know, open face lignite mine. You know, this this is real stuff that's happening under our noses all day, every day, everywhere on the planet. And um, and what's driving it is is business. Yeah, and it's um, it is Matt because it 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 <clears throat> it dawned on me. Um, it's it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, of re- well for some time, but again, watching the public trust and looking at the you know relationship with the land and. But again, all, and all this, what you're speaking to again, but it's this, you know, you sort of start questioning why is this, why is this going on? Like, in, you know, ra- you know, rational, you know, trying to think in the human mind, of like, but it's, it's this, so it seems to be this, again, this sort of sh- very short term story that we still hold, uh, you know, we, we, this extractivism kind of approach to the world, which we still seem, many people in, you know, in, in, in powerful positions seem either is it because you seek yourself? You can't, you know. Is it just you don't believe it, or is I mean, what is it that con- that, that continues that logic of extracting and destroying? You know, because I'll, for a short term gain, because you start to think that that you know that story is coming apart. This sense of short term growth and you know perpetual growth, and how do how might we shift to this longer term view of our of our place? You know, you watch that film and you look at the I can't remember. Is it is it the quitch the the, the the um indigenous people in alaska but that are featured but there, there's something you know again you 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 look at the the lands around like the bears ears and you know these when you hear them talk about you know their ancestors and this sense of thousands of years of 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 um connection and and and, and then you sort of switch to the sort of you know the you know the senators trying to do the deals with all the different kind of oil and gas companies and again it's just this it's such a shift in how we see the world 
you know, from this uh, time perspective. And it makes me wonder again how we might, you know, can we see a future where we're not having to make films about about like perils <laughs> of extractive culture, right? We're, because because we've actually shifted our consciousness. And um, so uh, I don't know where I'm going. You know, right I, now. It's I, just I, making me think. But well, I, I you know, Dan, I, I know how much you you care about the power of 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 story and the need to invent and and inspire you know, societal level changes through through storytelling and not, not just sort of marketing storytelling, but creating new narratives that are that are more compelling than the incumbent narrative. And there, you know, you and I both know that there are people who are not just telling those stories, but living those stories. Mm. And you look at Rob Hopkins, for example, and, and you know, the, the idea that you can create re- self-sufficient, regenerative communities that can have, you know, you know, a really wonderful quality of life, but are engaging in consumption in a much more mindful way. The idea that you can engage with and participate in food and energy and service, you know, skills and expertise um, at a community level, you know, there's some really, really powerful ideas out there that are already working i think the really difficult thing is to to scale those things and to make them believable for really large numbers of people and because i it's i don't it's not it's not going to be until you know ideas like that start to mainstream you know ideas like renewable energy communities you know the infrastructure is there the technology is there to to mainstream some of these brilliant ideas um but how you know how do we get that done and how do we get that done within the context of of the resistance of, of corporate monopoly you know and the huge lobbying power that puts um you know a lot of barriers in the way of the the important change that we need we live on a life-giving rock called earth hurtling through space how bonkers is that you're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. It's, yeah, it's it's brilliant, and and, and this the, I guess that's this shift, isn't it? To <clears throat> the shift to possibility again, which is this dance, isn't it, between sort of holding the line on the the destruction and 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 imagining and bringing forth something more beautiful. And I think you know, should we should we can we talk about the the new campaign you've got coming up because that's sort of speaking more to this, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and you put it really nicely there, Dan. You know, in, in this 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 shift from, um, you know, lifting up the rug and showing people what's underneath it, and and that's a really important, I think, a really important part of the work, you know, of, of identifying what's broken and why it's broken, and not just like that's a beautiful landscape we need to save it. But there are systems in place that are actively trying to extract that and take it away, right? And 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 that story needs to be told. And I think for us, for 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 a long time, and I think it will still continue to be part of what we do: storytelling um, in, around those kind of issues. And I would say Blue Heart was one of those. It's like we need to shine a light on this topic, mm. and we need people to know and to care, and we need to point people towards the you know. The, the weak underbelly of that system in order to you know <laughs> hopefully drive some some needed change artificial i think was was similar to that i think public trust is similar to that 
the campaign that we're working on at the moment, which is designed to draw attention to and hopefully drive participation in uh, renewable energy communities. And renewable energy communities, uh, you know, in really simple terms, is, is the idea that people can get together, um, build energy infrastructure, own that energy infrastructure, invest in it, um, consume the electricity that they produce, sell the surplus electricity back to others, out to others, and use that profit to regenerate their community in any way that they see fit. And it's a really, really powerful movement that benefits, you know, uh, communities. Uh, it benefits um, the planet <laughs> because, yeah. we, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, reducing, you know, reducing carbon impacts. But I think, you know, the, mo- the most exciting uh, thing that it, that it does, or one of the exciting things that it does is decouple communities from uh, from this um, sort of blind participation in the consumption of something, right? And in, and in this case, electricity. The idea that I don't, I don't really have to think about it; it just comes to me, and 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 I spend money, and I don't know where that money goes. Most of it goes to a, you know a huge energy conglomerate. A lot of the times, that money goes offshore. You know, a lot of the money that you pay for electricity in the UK will go to EDF, and that goes off. You know, to, to uh, benefit shareholders of EDF somewhere else in the world, and so this idea that you know you keep all of those resources, monetary, financial, you know, human power into one place—it's a really, really powerful and exciting movement. And for us, you know, the opportunity to start storytelling about future solutions, things that people can participate in, that are going to make a real difference um, if they can scale. And scaling RECs, scaling renewable energy communities is something that we're really deeply committed to. And, yeah, we've made a film, uh, True to Form, (laughs) uh, which will launch uh, in April, and um, uh, April the 15th, in fact. And, um, and, yeah, we've got a big campaign uh, supporting that. So, yeah, super excited to get that one out. I mean, it's, it is it, the, I think the community, I've done a little bit of, um, a, bit, a bit of exploration with community energy over, over the years. And this, this, you know, everything you've spoken to absolutely holds true. And for me, there's something though, which maybe is also tapped into this consumerist question as well, but there's a, there is something about when you become, and maybe it's consciousness, but when you become aware of the energy that you are creating, that you're generating, be it, you know, through solar on your roof or, you know, ownership in a wind turbine or whatever it might look like. But there's something about that awareness that shifts that I see, you know, the community energy groups that I've done some work with, or even, you know, even just as someone who's got some solar on his roof here at home, it's like something shifts because you have that awareness, you know, you see it, you see the meter humming when the sun's out, you kind of start to shift your own sort of behavior in terms of like when you use power, like even, if, you know, if, you know, we with storage battery thing obviously that's coming now but it wasn't for a while but you know you'd kind of like try and use your power in the day and then at night just kind of like you're quite happy to sort of um you know turn everything off and you're more comfortable with darkness and i don't know there's a shift there's a consciousness shift i think and i think for because you know in this kind of modernization this rapid kind of you know acceleration of consumerism and slickness and you know always on everything that we've all experienced which probably started from the 90s where we started this conversation but we've become so used to just you know pressing buttons you know and everything we need is there but in many ways it it's 
you know, that's what's almost become a kind of gluttonous, isn't it? This kind of like, we sort of like, you know, we're consu- consuming even like energy in this kind of way where it's kind of, it was very wasteful with it. We have no real consciousness, like you say, where it comes from, where does the money go that I'm paying? Um, and there's something I think about that community energy, which is so exciting, which is this, you know, real connection with energy, like what it is, you know, and it's, it's everything, right? Because we can't really do much without it. Um, yeah, it's really, you know, it, it's really fascinating you know, working through this project to be reminded that the human experience has through history been completely intertwined with the need for energy, you know, whether, you know, from, you know, and, and, and all of that energy ultimately comes from the sun, but the, you know, whether it's from, you know, farming food to, you know, setting fires uh, to, you know, the first windmills that were, you know, generating um, power to, grind grain and it wasn't until relatively recently that this sort of agency over energy was was ha- was was handed over to 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 uh, essentially to corporations right mm-hmm. and the, and the, the the relationship with it much like the relationship with food just gets completely broken and the information that you need to understand that thing that you're engaging with and using consuming sort of live somewhere else. Uh, and so to your point, Dan, um, to be an active participant in that, it, I, th- I think reframes that relationship again um, in, a, in, a re- in a really positive way. Um, and, yeah, and, and I think you can see it happening. And I think the, the idea is certainly becoming more popular that, you know, understanding about your food and its provenance and how it's made and where it comes from and understanding about your clothes and, you know, where they're made and, and, and who's been involved in making them and, you know, how it, it got to me and what it was wrapped in when it arrived. And, you know, and but energy is one of those topics where I think a lot of those same people who are deeply invested in, in other things that they know have an impact are still, like, okay with the idea of switching to a green energy tariff, which, by the way, is a good thing to do, but... Um, that is, you know, that green energy tariff is still wrapped up in a system that prioritizes the benefit of large corporate stakeholders and extracts the financial resources from communities and, 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 and uses it for profit. Whereas that, you know, the idea that those financial resources can come back into the community and benefit that community is the, is the most powerful idea about renewable energy communities. Um, yeah, it's really cool stuff. It's really exciting, and, and in the UK, there's a load of there's there's a lot of really really good stuff happening. And so, what are you what are you hoping for with this work? What's the what's the intention? The you know, you've got the film, you've got a campaign. What what are you? What's the sort of the intention um, for this for this getting into this space? And and what, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, at a at a, at a, a high level, raise awareness that it's a thing, that it exists make the idea exciting and hopefully intrigue a lot of people and get them involved. Yeah. At a more specific level, we want loads more people to join existing energy communities, ideally to invest in them, to invest their own money in expanding community energy infrastructure and become shareholders and stakeholders in renewable energy communities. Um, and in the UK, and by the way, you can be you can just be a customer of a, of a renewable energy cooperative. Yeah. Right? You can you, you can 
choose to buy your ele- electricity from that supply. Um, in the UK, there is another dimension, and that dimension is that there is still some pretty archaic legislation that makes it really difficult for renewable energy cooperatives to set up. There's currently about 300 in the UK, uh, 300 uh, RECs, RECs, and um, um, which uh, for the population of the UK isn't, you know, isn't a huge impact. Yeah. And one of the things that's, um, stop, that stops energy uh, cooperatives from setting up is that by law, they're not allowed to sell energy back to the grid. So that one really powerful pillar of benefit, which is you know, keeping the, uh, the financial return in the community and using that to you know, spend on whatever it is, a fleet of electric cars, upgrade your local park, invest in the school, whatever you want to do yeah um you can't you you can't do it at the moment um uh, and uh, but there is a bill in development called the local electricity bill uh which is a bunch of cross-parliamentary mps supported by an uh, a non-profit called power for people uh, who we support they're one of the grantees that we support in the uk and um they're trying to get that legislation changed so that uh, these groups will be able to sell their electricity back to others and therefore really kind of benefit from the the, the, the real vision of, of what this thing is. Um, so one of the things that people can do and one of the things in the UK that we're really driving for is for people to par- participate in that legislative process, get in touch with their MPs, make, them one, make their local MP one of the MPs that support this bill. They need 400 MPs to... To get it over the line, they're at about two hundred and fifty something at the moment. So I think when they get closer to that number, they'll 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 put that legislation forward. Um, so yeah, that's a that's an exciting milestone for the UK that could really change the game. It's not a silver bullet, but I think it will it, it will it will really help change the game change the game there. And does that um, does that um, does that bill exist? Just again because of just you know lobbying and keeping sort of profits in certain places and yeah so you used you you used to be able to do it to 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 uh to trade electricity back into the grid um as a non-profit or as an individual uh, but you no longer can um and that right was taken away um um by I, um, I, I'm not sure which conservative government, but it was one of the recent conservative governments. Oh, was that because? Because I say because I because I'm you know I still I mean I work with a, a, a green energy supplier and I have solar and I think I've had it for quite a few years and I, so I still think I I get some kickback still. But you that's, do, yeah. That change. This is what you're talking about. That that was that 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 provision has been changed so that it's not no longer possible. Is that right? For 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 a renewable energy community. Okay, so what so you it's a community is, company. Is, um, yeah, got it. Yeah, so if um, you need to go to Power for People for the, to yeah. their website because um, these guys are the ones that are really at the at the front line, um, and I'm sure you've got show notes down, so I'll, I'll send you all the links, um, and people yes. can can check yeah. out what they need to do. There's a really great guy called Steve Shaw who runs Power for People, and he's doing a brilliant job of of, of getting this uh, getting this much needed policy over the line, um, which yeah, like I say, will be part of changing things in the UK. It's not the silver bullet, but it's gonna yeah. it's it's gonna make a difference. It's it's fascinating. This um, it's just making as, you, as I'm listening to you, this whole idea of you know this, you know this disconnect through consumerism, like this. You know, you talking about, you know the disconnect with our food systems, the disconnect with our 
energy and when we put our you know when we when we transact everything to somebody else <clears throat> there's this sort of illusion of benefit but actually it's interesting if you think about it, not only not only are we sort of um losing track with you know what is the what's the side effect of all these things that we we you know we contract out or we sign off to someone else you know the the food we're going to eat the the power we're going to have in our homes but but there's something interesting i think as well about which sort of goes counter to the idea of um convenience which is actually we become in many ways i think more more dependent on the these systems you know because you know things like i i i wonder like you know if we can create you know distributed decentralized energy systems through community energy if we can bring kind of local food sovereignty back and get mass local food systems running again you know no one will have to work as much <laughs> you know it's like or go to the supermarket right do you know what i mean you, you create you create more freedom i mean it's it's but it's sort of countercultural in some ways isn't it because you kind of think oh convenience but convenience culture is not only is it sort of destroying everything it's kind of like in many ways it's sort of it, it it it's 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 tying our hands even more really to uh and i know that's hot you know and it's easier to grasp maybe if you've got a bit more you know uh privilege or independence you know because of your life journey or whatever but ultimately even speaking to that i think you know for coming out of covid and all these kind of things it just feels like this kind of stuff is is going to be so key to try and help people create you know a more meaningful existence as well as as well as you know, stopping the destruction on on a societal level, one hundred percent. And I think that's where you know, I think part of the challenge and you know, de- decoupling some of these ideas from from the politics, you know, from the you know, from the because a lot of the a lot of the time, some of these ideas which are really exciting and meaningful to you know, potentially meaningful to a really broad cross section of society you know, just get lumped into polarized politics. You know, this is just a wacky liberal idea. Um, but, but, you know, think of, you know, a village, you know, any village in the UK that, um, you know, that values its social fabric, you know, that values its pub and its post office. The, these ideas of, of um, you know, shared resources and community sharing things and working together, um, you know, are really powerful and relevant. And I think relevant to not just, you know, liberally leaning liberal, liberal, you know, politically speaking, liberally minded people, but to everybody. And I think somehow we need to sort of frame, you know, frame these stories in a way that's not just sort of lumped into, you know, sort of radical liberal thinking. And I, and I do think sometimes we can fall foul of that, to be honest with you. I'm not saying, I, I don't think we Patagonia have that cracked, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, uh, but yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right, Dan. The, you know, the, the, the benefits of these things, of, the, of some of these great ideas um, are, are not just about slowing down environmental destruction and, and, and global heating. Um, they're about shoring up social fabric. I want to um, just something on, I guess, the last the last year and, you know, 2020, which was, you know, crazy on so many levels. But just curious about and obviously, you know, witnessed Patagonia's um, responses as well to, to, to a lot of this, well, at least just as an outsider looking in. But, you know, and I think touching a little bit on 
the intersectional crises that we're obviously becoming more aware of now um, as a species. But when we talk about, you know, these really, really clear links between environmental destruction, you know, climate breakdown, racial injustice, social injustice, and these kind of intersectional crises, which we've often maybe viewed as being quite separate from each other, but we're as, as sort of culturally starting to, un, you know, many have understood this, you know, for a long, long time, but as a cult, cultures, I think we're starting to understand now um, the interconnections between these issues. And, you know, with obviously in the US last year and, you know, with, with the resurgence of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and obviously here in the UK and I mean, all over the world, but, you know, we're seeing a lot more connections being made between these different crises. What's, how does, how does Patagonia respond to that now? And, and, and thinking, I guess, about, you know, often, you know, cl- climate has been over here and environment here and, you know, racism over there. How, how does that, how's that been showing up for, for Patagonia? And, and, and can you share anything on that? Yeah, I mean, I know it's a big question. <laughs> it, 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 it is, it is, Dan, but it's a really important one. And I think if, if you know, if there is one topic that has um, that has dominated our thinking throughout 2020 and into 2021, it is social justice and climate justice and understanding, to your point, the um, the intersectionality uh, of these. Uh, of these movements you know may 2020 the murder of george floyd was a reckoning for everybody and you know at a at a a company level it was a reckoning at a personal level for me and many others that i know you know it was also a reckoning because i think the idea that um you know that systemic racism was so deeply embedded in our societies and in our working practices and in the outdoor experiences that we love and the even the physical outdoor spaces that we you know that 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 we love to visit um you know it was it, it, it was a it was a deeply important and timely reckoning right and i think all that you can do in that moment is hopefully rise to it and and realize that there is work to be done a lot of work to be done and so we we have spent a lot of time this year um uh, really trying to understand what is at stake with um with the outdoors um with the um you know an, an environment that is not necessarily a safe place for marginalized communities and and how can we be part of hopefully addressing that right but also within the environmental movement understanding of course that you know climate justice which is a you know something that we um you know a topic that we've been aware of and participating in for a long time um you know the the focus on that has really incredibly increased and of course you know when you understand and realize that that negative environmental impacts are um you know are are felt the hardest by the margin you know by marginalized communities around the world yeah 
and you know it, it and and of course around the world means everywhere it means in the uk it means it, you know it, you know everywhere then you have to understand what's at play and you have to find your place within that work and that's really you know really a lot of what we've been doing um but it, it's it, it's you know i think we have had to move from teacher to student you know on environmental work and on outdoor experiences for a long time we've been you know we've been in the in 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 a position of of you could say authority whether that's the right word but at least you know a voice that people looked to and listened to you know when we wanted to talk about outdoor sport and great products and environmental work um but with regards to climate justice and social justice and anti-racism we have really had to step into the seat of the student and that you know it's 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 humbling um but it's um it's what's needed you know yeah and it's no it's 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 it's, um i think that's the thing isn't it it's it's a it's a question you know there's a sort of the maybe the sort of in my sort of naive uh mind i i i i i sort of look at you know look at what's unfolding and my hope is that these different um you know obviously they're all interconnected right that's what we understand you know oppression of people and oppression of nature (laughs) through a through a sort of global kind of economic system is is what's leading it has what's led us to all these different issues and now we're seeing there their interconnections but my 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 hope is is that we, we you know we can join the dots between uh, a lot of these issues and, and as you say obviously that's going to require you know a, a a humbleness and a desire to 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 face into our own white privileges and and all kinds of you know uncomfortable stuff that needs to be unpicked and and like you say, some unlearning that that needs to go on. But my my hope is is that 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 there is he, huge healing and potential in 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 those you know in those connections and dots being joined. You know what I mean? And that there is because that then then maybe we 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 could be onto something quite substantial in terms of sort of energy and a field of change because we're understanding that actually we're really all talking about the same thing. <laughs> You know, um, or we're wanting this. We're not talking about. We're wanting. We're wanting a similar future. I think. Um, yeah, I, I love the way that you put that, Dan. And and um, you know, I. You know, when it when it comes to the topic of anti-racism, for example, you know, I think I think a lot of us, and I, well, I don't want to talk for others, but I will talk for myself. Yeah. In that, you know, for, for, for the, the idea that, you know, we, uh, I had a set of values that I believed in and, as, and, and incorporated into those values um, was that I'm, I'm, I'm not racist, right? Um, and that I, um, I believe that racism is, uh, is a destructive force. But, but in, in being challenged to, to learn more deeply the uh, the systemic nature of racist systems that oppress m- marginalized communities everywhere in every dimension has been you know a, 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 it's been a powerful journey yeah and to and to your point i think one that hopefully can inform better thinking on many many levels 
I really hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I really hope so. It was. It is. Um, I mean, just uh, just a. a, a th- I'll just throw another thought. It was. It's a reflection that I, I've had exactly on, on again on my own my own exploration of this over the last few months. But I've been running, been uh, at a project here in here in Bath, where I live, called I've been running called Dream Space, where we've been gathering um, uh, people to share stories of um, their sort of very localized felt experiences of some of these big issues you know we explored the kind of what it's like to you know to be living in a in a climate and ecological emergency what does that feel like as a as a you know as a as a person of in this city and um, we explored uh, a theme of you know of racism and anti-racism in bath again what does it feel like to to suffer racism in this place you know in this locality um, and then we looked at also the sort of inequalities um, that have been you know greatly exposed through the pandemic and and been working with this amazing girl here in Bath, Rukia Osman, who's been very sort of um, a key kind of um, organizer of BLM in Bath and at the universities. And um, and we, we convened this amazing group, um, people of color, black and people of color in, in, based in Bath. And, um, and they shared some pretty deep, personal, challenging stuff. But but what came through it, what you could feel, and, and, and they spoke to this, was just actually just an exhaustion of having to constantly tell these stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost like where we got to is actually what we need to be doing was we needed to be running spaces for white people to explore white privilege, you know. And again, not in a sort of, not in a kind of like, you know, we're all bad because, again, it's so institutionalized. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's something, it's so subtle almost in many ways that that, that actually you know, there has to be an in, an intention to sort of unpick it and explore it and un, and unlearn it. And it was just, it, you know, it was, it was an interesting came out of the process was that, you know, actually we need more spaces for, for the, for those, for those of us that, ha- that aren't experiencing this to, to start speaking about it, you know, but the, who are, who are, because as one girl said it, unless the culture, unless the story in the culture changes, nothing will change for us, you know, so how to keep these, how to keep these things alive, I think is going to be the, you know, and front front of mind. I, I, th- I think it is, Dan, but I think, you know, using the outdoor industry as an example here, you know, once you recognise and acknowledge that the outdoors itself is a systemically racist environment in which marginalised communities, on the whole, do not feel welcome and feel unsafe, there is an absolute obligation to do something about that. Mm. And when you've asked the questions and listened to the answers and you hear it time and time again, you, you, you of course, have to do something about that. And so, I, I, to your point, it, it, you know, it, it won't, it, I don't think it will go away. I mean, you know, the, the door is open. Yes, we, it is incumbent upon all of us to keep our feet jammed in the door and keep that conversation open and, 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 and create the necessary change that is required so that within the context of the outdoors, all people can benefit from the inc- incredible value and experience of, of being in the outdoors, right? Not, not just a, a small section of society. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, and that's, that is, um, a, I think a hopeful and inspirational challenge that, um, that some of us will try and rise to. Yeah. 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 No, I love that. Um, yeah. I want to just because we're we could probably go on for hours, mate. But I know, like you know, 
It's Friday. It's, it's Friday. 5 p.m. <laughs> exactly. Um, I know we talked about the consumerism piece and the elephant in the room, and I guess there's a, there's a few there's a few strands that are sort of clear to me, and maybe maybe you could just speak to a bit of this. But I guess you know there's you know there's a few things that there's there's your push on warmware, which I know you mentioned, but you know that's something you, I think you started in 2017. It feels like it's becoming a quite a, a it feels like it's a, a big a big bigger piece of 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 your of your future. Um, so I'd like to anything you can just share a bit more on where on where that's going. But it's also just chimes me. I remember I remember Yvonne Chouinard saying this thing: "There's no such thing as sustainability." You know what I mean? Like every every, every time you make anything and sell anything, you're you're creating an impact. So the idea that you can just be you know it doesn't exist. So this whole idea of of product and and of course then there's the sort of classic you know I can't remember what it was, but you know you, you, there was that amazing bit of Patagonia comms those ads you ran where it was like you know please don't buy this please don't buy these, this jacket or I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was, it was basically telling us not, you know, telling us not to buy stuff. Um, yeah. But where, where, so where, where's this all heading this kind of like, you know, and I, and I've noticed as well, just, just, you know, even just on, you know, how your, you know, quite a lot of your stores and communities are, they're often kind of, you know, talking about, you know, running kind of films on helping people kind of, you know, f- fix, fix kit, also making new kit out of old kit. And there's a real, it's a real, big push which is again in a sort of world of back to where we started a world of sort of consumerism and stuff it's again it's sort of countercultural, but it's fascinating and so what can you what can you tell us a little bit about all of that you know um and worn where i mean the spirit of warmware has been there for quite a long time in the company this idea of you know repairing busted gear and keeping stuff going for longer um is, is you know something we've been doing for ages and it actually started out life as as uh, a storytelling platform called the stories we wear and it was just designed to remind people that some of the you know some of the most radical and cool experiences that you've had in your life have, have happened in you know in, in in your most treasured garments and you know cherishing that keeping those garments going so there was this you know the, the, you know the first intent was this sort of emotional connection with the idea of product longevity what that ultimately turned into was a, a, a big global repair platform that you know tours people going out showing people how to repair their own gear and um, creating you know learning and education tools online so people could watch a short video on how to fix a busted zipper or whatever you know these are all relatively small things <clears throat> at the heart of all that though was the desire to change people's relationship with stuff and to you know think about what they already own before they think about buying something new, and that that intention was 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 genuine. What that has evolved to is um, a more sort of holistic cross business vision for um, for for second life product, end of life product, recycling, upcycling, re-commerce, and being able to ultimately give our customers the choice to buy both either new or used Patagonia gear from us in the same space online is where we're heading to. That's what, that's what we want the ultimate outcome to be. Um, it's quite difficult to do by the way, um, in in a sort of practical operational sense, but that's where, that's where we're, that's where we're headed. But of course that's only really sort of part of the equation. And it, it is, um, it is a very, it is very practical. It is also quite metaphorical for, let's say, deconsumption. Um, but I think until we really get to the root of 
how we can not only get to a sort of resource neutral status as a business, but a regenerative status so that hopefully we are um, putting more back in than we're taking out. That's, I think that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a long road ahead and it's going to be challenging. And I think one of those big questions and one that we are grappling with as a company is, um, is growth, mm. is just the idea that year after year we will sell more things uh, versus the idea that we could be at a, uh, you know, a, a, a size of business that is the size that we want to be. And we can have all the impact that we want to have and um, we can nurture all of the things that we want to nurture within our communities and we can take action upon the things that we want to take action upon. We can continue to build great product. Um, we can continue to service our customers with that great product and we can do all of that without growing, right? And that is, that is um, I wouldn't say a solved challenge or a question, but it's, it is something that the company is trying to understand you know, if and how we would do that. I love that. And it's, it's, it's this whole thing, isn't it? It's like, it's, uh, it's, um, it's being aware of, of, of limits, having limits, knowing what there's a nice thing I've seen at a moment about, you know, I was talking about efficiency, but like, let's talk about sufficiency. Like what is, you know, how much is sufficient, you know? And, and it's just, this the whole, yeah, this deeper question of like, you know, what, what is enough and when, you know, when are we satisfied and what limits are we going to put on things? And these are kind of things that just seem to have been, again, just sort of lost in, 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 in commerce, particularly over the last, you know, the few years, this idea of having limits almost seems absurd. Um, what's, what's, you're right, but what's really interesting, Dan, and, you know, we're absolutely seeing this, is the, abs, is the explosion of e-commerce, right, especially with young people. You know, young, young people, they, you know, they, 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 they change their minds about the things that they like. They evolve as people, and clothing has always been a really, you know, powerful tool of self-expression. Um, and the way that young people have been able to get access to that sort of you know, changing of their, you know, their image has been through fast fashion, you know, relatively recently. But you can see that when another option like Depop is given to them, mm. they'll absolutely go there. You know, they'll absolutely. And not only that is, you know, it's an environment where you can participate and benefit from. I'm done with this. I'm going to sell it. And somebody is definitely going to buy it. And that thing there that that person's selling, I'm going to buy it. And do you know what? It's going to cost me less. And it's going to be twice, three times, four times the quality of the thing that I would have previously bought from H&M or Topshop. I think Topshop's gone now, isn't it? But whatever. Yeah. Um, and th this is real stuff that's happening. And it's quite, and it's, and it's pragmatically driven. And the fact that, you know, technology has enabled something like Depop and, you know, the various sort of peer-to-peer -peer second life marketplaces to scale um, is a really, really brilliant thing. And, you know, these are people, young people who will become adults and bring that, understanding of you know something doesn't have to be new for me to want it um and the circularity uh, of product and second life third life fourth life things i think this this is this is a genie that's out of the bottle and what you're now seeing is brands racing to be in that game you know to have their own second life platforms so they can resell their own jeans rather than, than the, you know, they want a slice of the pie yeah. rather than being sold on Depop. So there's a lot of really cool trend-based stuff that's happening that is, 
addressing some of these some of these things of course it's not addressing um the consumption desire that sits at the heart of that it's just a different all, way all of the, all, all, the, all, the, all the shareholders as i guess that's i guess it's like our, our shareholders going to be happy with 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 that model which has limits and 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 i guess that's what we're all up against now isn't it because talking about you're right my son just had some bloke just dropped off a pair of trainers an hour ago uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> apparently they were quite they were cheap they were secondhand i'm not sure they were that cheap but anyway move on but yeah i guess that's the thing isn't it are you are you getting a sense from that i mean you know you're obviously a sort of private business and but what would you where do you think that that dynamic of because like you say that the future in the minds you know if, if, if that if this generation will bring that into how they think about designing enterprise um then that's really hopeful i guess it's just like how does the yeah designing enterprise and designing product and you know and for and i can only speak for us in that one of the things that warmware enabled so in order to do warmware effectively you need a lot of people to be able to repair gear and make you know make it ready for reselling Mm. um or to repair it and give it back to those customers if it's a you know if it's a repair job and um and the, the process of that gives you a deeper understanding of how to design product so that it doesn't fail in the same way that when you redesign it or that you're designing for repairability. And design for repairability, I think, is a big change that is needed. Right? Not to designing for obsolescence, but designing for um, for circularity mm. and and repairability. So, you know, I think that's a uh, you know that's a change that is that is uh, that is needed. But of course, if that change isn't compatible with sort of relentless, never-ending growth, which Publicly, you know, the publicly owned, publicly traded business model is right. Yeah. If it's not, if it's not compatible with that, then it will be challenging for sure. I mean, you know, we 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 have the benefit of being privately owned, so there aren't those same there aren't those same pressures, and and maybe that that is at least in part, you know, why we're able to do some of the things that we're able to do. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it it's, it, it, it's so interesting. It's reminding me of. Um... Because again, I guess as you're saying, like designing for repairability, and then obviously creating a system where you're able to, to you know, to to create new new things out of old products. Like you say, it's messy. You're having to sort of design a completely different type of system, I imagine. And and, and we're probably moving from this that sort of faster, you know, faster, more efficient way of producing products. And then you're sort of thinking you're trying to design a system which is actually, I guess, is more. Um, human scale in some ways because potentially um but it is but it's a different it is a completely different philosophy almost isn't it yeah it is i mean if you know if you think about for example um if if you reached a a place where all of your customers no matter where they were 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 able to take the product that they own that they bought from you to somewhere close to them, maybe within their immediate vicinity community, to be repaired and handed back to them, or that they could say, "Okay, I, I don't need this product anymore. I'm going to trade it back to you, Patagonia or whoever else, um, and get some credit and benefit from that that I might use to get something I actually do need or want from you." And that all of these things can happen close to the point of need. You're also putting 
these skills and services that to your point are very tactile very human things you know a, a machine it's very difficult to program a, a, a machine to repair a tear in a jacket right? mm. these things these things are very manual they're very human and and this again comes back to this idea of local communities this idea that you know if we have a repair station in our store in bristol we currently don't by the way um but that is absolutely an ambition so that our, the community that you know uh, that's connected to the Patagonia brand in Bristol know that you know there is a uh, a product technician in that store that can repair that jacket whenever they need it repaired um and that's putting employment into that community it's you know it's keeping craft alive yeah so, you know, there are lots and lots of benefits to these you know evolved business models yeah no I love it I love it um Thank you, Alex, for this time. We, we I'm, you know, I can see we can just we could keep going, but we'll, we'll do another one down the line. Um, but um, just uh, anything folks could be looking out for, ways to get involved, things that um, people curious about the Patagonia mission. Um, I can put all the show notes, but just any 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 top of mind thoughts. I would um, I would ask anyone that's listening to uh, to check out our very latest uh, film mini film campaign called Viosa Forever, and um, we we have a possibility uh, along with a network of groups that we're supporting to permanently protect the the River Viosa in Albania, which runs from the the mountains in northern Greece actually just across the border from Albania into Albania and down into the Adriatic Sea. It's over three hundred kilometers long. It is pretty much the only fully intact wild river ecosystem in Europe and one of the only few left in the world. And we have a chance of, of, of protecting it in perpetuity um, and for it to attain the status of the first ever wild river national park. And so we are really pushing on a campaign at the moment that is doing a couple of things. <laughs> it's, um, it's There's an election coming up in Albania and it's kind of putting some... Uh, pressure into that election moment um, to try and get uh, um, candidates to commit uh, to uh, to the Viosa National Park, Viosa River National Park, and um, and also putting a little bit of pressure on uh, Ursula von der Leyen and the crew at the EU um, to see this river as a European national treasure and mm. hopefully work with Albania to to do that it's a truly in, incredible place um and it's a place that's very much worth protecting and it's right on our doorstep so if if you feel like getting active um yeah hop into that campaign and um uh, there's some things that you can do there nice nice it's a, be- it's a beautiful little film as well it's really yeah nice. I'll, I'll i'll stick the links in for that and obviously we'll stick in some links to action work that's another folks want to get get active um and um yeah i'll just fi- fin- you know finish off my little question you know on the spaceship earth becoming crew on the spaceship earth just curious to thinking about where we are right now this time 2021 what's that what's what's that suggesting to you yeah i mean we spoke about it earlier dan i think you know understanding what justice is at a at a, at a global level and relearning my place in a truly equitable crew mm. on spaceship earth. I think that's, that's this moment for me. And I think that will be 
um, you know, that'll be where a lot of my uh, intention is is focused over over the coming months and years. I think. Beautiful. Thank you, Alex. Really, yeah, man. Thank that. you. Thank you. I loved it. Oh, it's always great chatting to you, Dan. It's brilliant. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't ramble too much, did I? No. I think I, I think I might have rambled more than you. To be honest, it's good. I don't know. It's good. But, to have, um, it's good. To, it's good to have a ramble. So it's, yeah. it's been a long week. So there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alex. What a brilliant human he is, and um, what an extraordinary business uh, organization Patagonia is. And um, do check out their work campaigns and films you can learn your way into uh so many of these really complex <clears throat> issues we're facing and you can really get under the skin with patagonia they're really um i think creating some beautiful um uh, ways for people to learn about what this system that we've <clears throat> that we've built is doing now to our our living world and therefore ultimately to ourselves so a lot to explore there. I definitely recommend watching uh, Artificial, um, Public Trust, uh, and the new campaign and film Alex mentioned, We the Power. Um, but once you start digging into Patagonia, you'll be bowled over with just amazing content. Films, they have a book division, amazing books they release. Uh, and there's so much we didn't get into. Um, you know, like the big drive into sustainable food with Patagonia provisions, um, their work with regenerative agriculture, their work with soils, um, and the extraordinary ways that they cultivate a company culture and a way of working. And again, you know, there's the classic book, Let My People Go Surfing, The Responsible Business, but also their approach to things like company childcare. I mean, there's a book called The Family Business, and, and you think, what might happen if if you know all businesses adopted this this type of thinking you know what kind of shift would be possible if if we kind of joined hands on these ideas um it's all part of that really challenging mission of leading and practicing in an examined life it's it's uncomfortable but is there any other way if we're to genuinely heal this world and shift to a life sustaining way of organizing ourselves on the spaceship earth so yeah, hope you enjoyed it. So if you are enjoying this podcast, if you enjoyed that podcast, do share it. Give us a rating or a, <clears throat> a review on Apple or, or whatever medium you, you you listen on. It's uh, it's always really helpful to get a little cheeky review. Go on, give us a review. Go on. And you can subscribe to the Spaceship Earth newsletter. It goes out once a month. Um, and if you've got any questions or thoughts on anything, drop us a line, dan at spaceship.com earth i'm going to play out this episode with a track uh this is a track from max cooper um it's called perpetual motion it's from his yearning for the infinite album from 2019 it's got a beautiful vibe and a beautiful energy uh look after yourselves take good care of those around you and the more than human world which creates life for all of us until next time peace and out <laughs>